week one, our theme was hope. Uh, and we were in Luke chapter 19, where we were talking about Zacchaeus. Jesus said, I came to seek and save that which was lost. And so Zacchaeus uh, was saved because Jesus came and sought him out. Uh, in week two, our theme was peace. Uh, Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And when we have an attitude of service rather than superiority and supremacy, we can have peace with God, peace with others, and peace with ourselves. In week three, last week, our theme was joy. John 10.10, 10, I, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And a synonym for that abundant life is joy. And we can have true joy no matter what happens in this world because we know that Jesus came and by having placed our faith in him, we know that our eternity is settled. And we know that we are his children. And now this week, our theme is love. The reason that Jesus said he came. Now my soul has become troubled and what am I to say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. So let's orient ourselves a little bit with John chapter 12 before we dive in. Uh, John chapter 11, of course, is where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, and uh, that was in Bethany, which is just two miles south of Jerusalem. He's, he's very near to coming to Jerusalem for uh, his triumphal en entry and his Passion Week. But those who witnessed that healing, uh, they went from Bethany to Jerusalem and they told the Pharisees what they had seen. Uh, and the Pharisees, of course, were up in arms about this. The chief priest called a meeting and one of them said, if we let him go on like this, the whole world is going to follow him and the Romans will come and they'll take away our position and our place. And then Caiaphas answers and says, you know nothing. It is more expedient uh, for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. And then John adds parenthetically, Caiaphas said this, uh, because he was high priest that year and he was prophesying about what was going to happen that year, that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And so that's kind of the backdrop in chapter 11. Uh, chapter 11 continues with the Pharisees giving orders that if anybody knows where this Jesus is, well, they are to report that so that the Pharisees can arrest him. And so their response to the miracle is not rejoicing that their Messiah had come, but it's jealousy and, and, a, and a desire for revenge. In the first part of chapter 12 now, Mary anoints Jesus' feet uh, in Bethany, and, and Judas, of course, makes a stink about that, saying, why this waste? This could have been sold for 300 denarii. And uh, Jesus defended Mary, saying, what she has done, she has done to prepare me for my burial. Well, many Jews came there to see, uh, to Bethany, to see Jesus and to see Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead. Uh, and so what we have then is that the Pharisees planned to kill them both. They wanted to cover up the evidence of what had happened uh, because so many people were believing in Jesus. But Jesus wasn't there hiding in Bethany, right? Jesus had a plan and he was sticking to his schedule. This was all going to happen on his schedule. Uh, it was going to happen during the Passion Week, uh, during the uh, week that Jesus had planned for this to, have, uh, to happen. So Jesus wasn't hiding. So he comes to Jerusalem now for what we call the triumphal entry in the middle of chapter 12. And now the whole city is buzzing. Uh, I want you to think about Jerusalem. Uh, at the time, uh, this is Passover, it's the biggest feast, the, the most well-attended feast. In fact, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus says that there were two million people in Jerusalem at that time for the Passover that year, uh, which may have been an exaggeration, but even if it was half that, even if it was a million people, this is not a big city, Jerusalem, and a million people is a whole lot of people who came to celebrate this festival. So Jews came from far and wide to see this 
Uh, they came because they were supposed to come. According to the law, they had to attend these Jewish feasts. So many Jews would be there. But there would also be uh, what people who they called God-fearers as well. Now, a God-fearer is a Gentile who uh, loves the monotheistic God of, of Israel but hasn't gone all the way to being circumcised, and, and who can blame them? Uh, but they didn't want to do that as adults, so they did not. Uh, and so they were, they were very much, though, interested in the God of the, of the Jews. And, of course, there were curiosity seekers. There always will be. There were people who just came to Jerusalem to see the spectacle of Passover. Uh, and so it would be like uh, you know, how people go to Rockefeller Plaza in New York City to see the Christmas tree around Christmas time. Millions of people there, just uh, people there to see the spectacle. But the place was teeming uh, with people and with excitement and with buzz over what might happen over the course of the next week. So now let's look at verses 20 to 23. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And these people then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and were making a request of him saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. But Jesus answered them by saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So you're in Jerusalem. It's a small city. It's enclosed by walls. The streets are narrow. There could have been upwards of 2 million people there. Most of them have heard of Jesus by this point. He's been spending the last three years doing tons of miracles, tons of healings, and not only that, causing tons of controversy, right? Because he healed on the Sabbath. Uh, because he contradicted the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, uh, because he embarrassed them publicly at every turn when they contradicted him uh, publicly, uh, Jesus always had the upper hand. And so the people around who were faithful followers of Jesus were really hoping that he was the Messiah. I mean, if this guy could raise Lazarus from the dead, well, surely he can overthrow Roman oppression, and surely he can restore Jerusalem and Israel to the former state of glory that it had under David and Solomon. So Jesus was a huge celebrity at this point in time, and so almost everyone there would have wanted to have an audience with Jesus. And so John notes that some Greeks, which is just a generic term for Gentiles, uh, wanted to have a word with Jesus. Now, why would John point that out when everybody would have wanted to have a word with Jesus? And the reason is not really because the request itself is so noteworthy, but because of Jesus' response to the request. Because this is the moment that Jesus chose to decide that his public ministry to the Jews was going to be over and that his hour had come. Now, Jesus had been proclaiming himself publicly to the Jews for three years, trying to convince them that he was the Messiah. And he proved that he was the Messiah by word and by deed. And by and large, the Jews rejected him, although some did believe. But after this, Jesus would only meet privately with his own disciples. He would only uh, be with them in the upper room for the, the, what we call the upper room discourse, John 13 through 17. And then he would die. Uh, he would die not just for the Jews, but for the whole world, the Gentiles included. And so ironically, when the Jews were becoming the most hostile toward Jesus, now the Gentiles, the Greeks, come eagerly looking to see him. And perhaps these Greeks approached Philip because Philip is actually a Greek name. Uh, maybe they thought they had some affinity with him. Uh, we don't really know why they chose Philip to approach. But John tells us that these Greeks went up to speak to Philip, and they went to the Passover uh, festival, the feast, to worship there. 
So this, from this we can deduce that they were uh, not mere curiosity seekers. They were worshipers. They were probably God-fearers. They were attracted to the God of Israel and Jesus' teaching, and they genuinely wanted an audience with Jesus to find out what this teaching was all about, to, to understand it better. And so when they say, we wish to see Jesus, this is you know, a lot more than just wanting to have a peek at Jesus. This means they want to be in a room with Jesus to interview him, uh, to, to have an appointment with him, to talk to him and understand his teaching. You know, th this uh, little phrase, we wish to see Jesus, this has been used quite frequently in pulpits around the country. In fact, uh, at the Open Door Church in L.A., where uh, J. Vernon McGee preached for 21 years, there was a, a plaque right on uh, his pulpit that said, we wish to see Jesus. And he put that there because it was a reminder to him and anybody else who would preach in that pulpit that the preaching ministry is not about anything except to exalt Jesus, right? It's not about exalting self. Uh, it is most certainly not about, uh, you know, a smoke and light show. Uh, it's definitely not about uh, doing anything other than exalting Jesus. And so uh, McGee wanted to be reminded of that, and, and uh, we all need to be reminded of that, right? When we are, as disciples of Jesus, our goal is to exalt Jesus Christ. And I think that's what these Greeks wanted to do. They wanted to learn about Jesus so they could go out and talk about Jesus. And so I think that's what they have in mind here. Th these Greeks have a genuine interest, not a malicious interest in Jesus. Well, they come to Philip, and he seems unsure about how to handle this request, so he goes to see Andrew, Andrew and then together, uh, Philip and Andrew go to see Jesus. And so John never reports whether Jesus actually saw these Greeks or not, because it's really irrelevant to, to John's point, which is that Jesus has chosen this hour as the hour uh, where he uh, has, has revealed that, that now is the time. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. So when we, when we read this phrase, this hour, uh, he doesn't mean a literal hour, right? A 60-minute hour. He's talking about the time has come, the appointed time has come. And it's the term that, that Jesus used throughout John's gospel to talk about his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. And it's interesting that he chooses this phrase because throughout God, John's gospel, we see Jesus saying, the hour has not yet come, right? In John chapter 2, at the wedding at Cana, uh, they've run out of wine, and, and his mother Mary comes to him and says, Jesus, will you do something about this? And, and Jesus says, woman, why do you trouble me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, uh, the Pharisees, after hearing Jesus' teaching, want to seize him, but he slips through their fingers because his hour had not yet come. And now here in chapter 12, abruptly, just seemingly on, on this spontaneous request from the Greeks, now Jesus says that his hour had come. And so this is the time for Jesus' death, his resurrection, his burial, his ascension. Essentially, his glorification is what the Bible calls it. The chain of events that would lead to his death was now in motion. And so the Pharisees would plot behind the scenes to murder Jesus, and they wouldn't stop until it was accomplished. And of course, this all happened according to the predestined plan and will of God. Uh, that's the divine side of it, but from the human side of it, they had set the wheels in motion now uh, to be sure that Jesus was ultimately killed. 
And so this word glorification refers to Jesus' uh, exaltation upon his death, burial, and resurrection. But the process of glorification happens through obedience to God and submission to God's will, as this has been the plan for all time, uh, Jesus' death on the cross. So his hour has come. And now in the next few verses, Jesus is going to use a metaphor from agriculture uh, to talk about what his death would accomplish both for himself and for his disciples. So let's look at 24 to 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The one who loves his life loses it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Well, in that agrarian society, everybody would have understood this metaphor of, of one seed dying to produce life exponentially. Uh, Jesus talked about it in the parable of the sower, right, in Matthew 13. Uh, a sower went out to sow, he put seeds in the ground, the seed that fell, falls on good soil produces a crop 30, 60, 100 times. So now Jesus applies that principle to his own death in verse 24. He is the single seed who will die to produce much fruit. Now remember, thinking about this fruit, who this fruit will be, uh, Jesus said later in John chapter 12, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Now that obviously doesn't mean that all men will be saved, but it does mean that Jesus died for all men, and all whom God has chosen, all whom God has given to Jesus, those will believe and they will be saved. And so that's the prin principle of multiplication through death. Jesus had to die, he had to be buried in the ground so that his life and his death would produce much fruit. Uh, and so Jesus set the example now for his apostles to follow. Uh, Jesus talked about the mindset that's required for disciples to go out and produce more fruit. <clears throat> in verse 25, Jesus said, if you love your life, you will lose it. Well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus is teaching here the principle of self-sacrifice. We have to be self-sacrificial. And that means that God has to be first. So if we love ourselves and if we love our lives more than we love God, well, we've made idols of ourselves and we've made idols of our lives. Uh, God has given us this life and he wants us to believe in him. And then he wants us to pour our lives out so that others will believe. So we need to serve them. We need to live for Christ and we need to make disciples for the kingdom. And of course, this requires enormous sacrifice. This is what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It requires that we be living sacrifices, that we continue uh, to give of ourselves day after day. And if we are living this sacrificial life, we show that our priorities are in order. God first, then others, and then ourselves last. And if we continue to live for self, well, then it either shows that we have not received the gospel, that we have not truly been saved on the one hand, or on the other hand, it shows that we have not really understood the responsibility that we have as followers of Christ to make disciples so that others may enter into the kingdom. So that's what he means when he's talking about losing our lives. Uh, and now he's talking about uh, if we hate our lives in this world, we will keep them for eternity. So the contrast to loving our lives is hating our lives, but the difference is that we lose our lives uh, in the short term, but here we gain our lives in the long term. We keep them for eternal life. 
So Jesus doesn't mean hate as in despise, like we should despise the fact that we're alive. That's not what he means at all. What he means is that our love for God must be so supreme uh, that all other love by comparison seems to be almost as hate. Uh, Jesus used the same kind of language when he says that anybody who wants to be my disciple must hate his father, mother, brother, and sister, right? He doesn't mean hate your mother, father, brother, or sister. He means in comparison uh, to your love for me, your love for them should almost seem as though it's like hate. It should, it should pale in comparison to your love for Jesus. So that's what he's talking about with these comparisons about love and hate. This is what a disciple looks like. Now in verse 26, uh, he says here that uh, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. Uh, Henry Blackaby wrote a whole book on this principle of verse 26 called Experiencing God. Uh, and the premise of the book is look where you see God working and then go there and join him, right? That's the whole premise of the book. And so that's what, where he draws it from, this particular verse. Uh, if you see me working, uh, wherever, uh, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. So uh, you join God in his work, and, and if you do that, God will honor you. And now, in Jesus' metaphor about death, as we think about the whole picture now, where Jesus is talking about himself, his death, and talking about his disciples' death, there are different kinds of death, right? We understand uh, from this that, that in Jesus' metaphor, uh, the, the disciples, uh, well, those disciples did die, but generally we are not uh, going to be asked by God to die. What, what that means for us is that we pour our lives out. Uh, we give of ourselves. We serve of ourselves. We don't actually lose our lives. We just pour them out for the benefit of others. We die to self for the benefit of other people. So our death is, is more or less metaphorical, right? It's a figurative death for the most part. Some of us may be asked to die. Missionaries across the country are, or across the world are dying. But in the United States, that's generally not happening. Uh, so for us, it's, it's more of a figurative death. For Jesus, the death that produces many seeds is a literal death, right? Jesus was going to go to the cross. He was going to die. He was going to be buried. Uh, and his resurrection would produce many seeds. And that is the very reason Jesus came. He came to die that we might live. And so that brings us to the purpose statement for this week. Uh, Jesus came for this reason. Now my soul has become troubled. And what am I to say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. John, <clears throat> in his gospel, does not mention the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, with that whole uh, part of, of the other Gospels that we see in the Synoptics, we don't have that in John. Uh, so this is Jesus' Gethsemane right here as he's contemplating what is ahead for him. Uh, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is in the garden sweating drops of blood, agonizing over the cross that is to come. But in John's Gospel, this is the moment where Jesus is doing his wrestling, and it says that his soul became troubled the Greek word is terasso, and it means uh, to, be, uh, to be deeply unsettled. We, we talk about it, or he used that word when he wept over Lazarus's tomb, and when he was telling his disciples uh, that somebody in this upper room would betray him, his soul was troubled. And when he told the disciples, don't be troubled that I'm telling you that I will depart because I'm going to send a helper, that's the same word. So it means to be revulsed to be horrified, to be grief-stricken, to be in turmoil. 
And these are the emotions that Jesus is experiencing here in this very verse, John 12, 27, as he has this internal battle. Now, there are some theologians from the early church uh, who were trying to wrestle with the concept of Jesus's humanity and his deity at the same time. It was a very perplexing and vexing uh, paradox in their minds. How do, we, how do we deal with this as they're reading the Gospels? And, and I think, for the most part, they were very well-meaning. They were just trying to figure out how this works together, his humanity and his deity, how Jesus could appear to be God and yet appear to be man at the same time. And one of the solutions they came up with was that uh, Jesus was not actually a man, but that he just appeared to be a man. Another solution was that he was 50% God and 50% man. And another solution was that, well, he was just a phantom in body, uh, wasn't really, didn't have a physical body. They're wrestling with all of these issues, trying to figure out how uh, to, to reconcile Jesus' apparent humanity and deity at the same time. Uh, because John emphasizes them both, right? John is very clear to emphasize, even from the beginning, John chapter 1, talking about Jesus' deity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So he's very clear to emphasize his deity, but as you, you progress through the gospel, uh, you're not able to explain away his humanity either. Uh, John stresses the humanity with, with, uh, with his encounter with the woman at the well, right? He's tired. He sits down. He's thirsty. He needs something to drink. Uh, he wept over Lazarus, a, a very real human emotion. He cared for his disciples as they grieved in the upper room. Uh, he even made sure that, that his mother was cared for there as he, as he hung on the cross. Uh, so his emotional agony throughout the gospel, and particularly in verse 27 here, is very human. And the reason why I mention this, the reason why I stress this, is because if Jesus were not human, he would not be qualified to serve as our sacrifice. He would not have been qualified to die in our place and for our sins. He had to be human. He had to endure the same temptations that you and I endure and yet be without sin to identify with, with us in every respect in order to be qualified to be a substitute sacrifice. And so he was the only lamb without blemish whose sacrifice would be acceptable to God. And that's why John is talking about his humanity here. So let's just talk about this question. Now my soul has become troubled, and what am I to say? Father, save me from this hour? Well, this is a hypothetical question, right? Jesus is not going to ask the question. He's not going to ask to be saved from this, uh, from this event. Uh, he is going to say, uh, almost as though it's a rhetorical question, uh, I came for this hour, and so I can't ask to be saved for it. For this very purpose, I came. His purpose was to endure this hour. And so this is the purpose statement that we're talking about this week. And so when we understand that this hour means his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension, uh, then we can understand the reason we came, he came to die. And so we could almost uh, retranslate the verse saying, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, the whole reason that I came to this hour was to die. And so that's why I'm tying the purpose statement this week to our Advent theme of love. 
Because there's no other explanation for why Jesus would come, why he would submit to the Father's will, why he would become a man, live a difficult life, yet without sin, and then go to the cross on our behalf, except for his incredible love for us. And to me, this is the true meaning of Christmas. I mean, it is right that we should celebrate that Jesus Christ, uh, God eternal, became a man, inhabited uh, the body of a baby uh, who couldn't feed himself, couldn't clothe himself, couldn't transport himself. Uh, He was vulnerable to human frailties like hunger and thirst. He suffered human emotions like fear, despair, anger, anxiety. Uh, He never stopped being God, but he laid aside his divine prerogatives for a time. uh, And and this all happened at Jesus' incarnation. So this is, it's great, and it's right that we should celebrate all of these things. But it's also right to look forward to, to the meaning of his life, the purpose that he came. Because only Jesus could be the sacrifice that God demands for sin. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, uh, they were tempted and they fell and God pronounced judgment on them. Eve would bear the pain of childbirth. Adam would have to work hard to make the ground produce fruit. But even before God finished pronouncing judgment on them, he was already making provision for them, uh, pronouncing judgment on the serpent and saying that, uh, that one day, serpent, uh, there will be a redeemer and he will strike you. He will crush your head. Uh, and though Satan would strike his heel, Jesus would crush his head. And that's all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So as Jesus prepared to go to the cross, he went to the cross to fulfill this very ancient prophecy. And so sin and death entered the world when Adam and Eve fell. Uh, But Jesus is the second Adam uh, who never gave in to Satan's temptations, uh, who succeeded where Adam and Eve failed. And so he is uh, the fulfillment. He is the redeemer that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3, who went to the cross, the lamb without blemish, uh, redeeming all that was lost in the Garden of Eden. And so what seemed like a win for Satan when they crucified Jesus, uh, Jesus turned the tables on that uh, with his resurrection uh, and turned out that, that what seemed like a death knell for Jesus was only a bruise on the heel, whereas Jesus' resurrection was Satan's death knell. Uh, now sin, Satan, and death are conquered because Jesus won the victory All that's left now is for Jesus to return, uh, to redeem his saints, to cast uh, Satan uh, into prison for a thousand years, and then ultimately into the lake of fire. And in the meantime, though Satan's going to try to destroy us, we have a Savior, and when we place our faith in him, uh, Satan cannot touch us. And that is the meaning of Christmas. So Jesus, like John Coffey, Uh, could have made quite a stink, right, when he was going to the cross. He said, I could call down 12 legions of angels to rescue me if that is what I wanted. But Jesus's purpose was to come, to come, to live and to die for our sins. And so instead of doing his will, he submitted to the Father's will, and he put others first. He put you first. He put me first, and he went to the cross Uh, putting himself behind everybody, saying, Father, glorify your name, and going to the cross, dying for crimes that others committed. It was for this very reason that Jesus said he came to this hour uh, to be the seed who died for sins that would produce much fruit, all because of love. What a, a Savior, what a God we have. Let me give you a couple of applications as we close. Here's the first one. How can you glorify God in your hour? 
You know, there are no coincidences. God has given each of us a different set of circumstances, a different set of people who are within our circle of influence. So where does God have you right now? Uh, if you're in a time of health and relative prosperity, well, praise the Lord. Uh, if you're in a time of hardship, well, how can God use this time of hardship in your life, uh, and how can you glorify him through it? Uh, Jesus sought to bring God glory at all turns, and that should be our purpose too. So no matter what obstacle God has placed before us, how can we take that and use it to glorify God? Whatever it is, it's an opportunity to praise him and to bring him glory. And one way we can do that is by bringing glory to God by loving others. You know, the two most loving acts that have ever happened on the face of the earth was God first becoming a man and second humbling himself to die on a cross. There, there are no parallels to that. Uh, and so his model of self-sacrifice brought glory to God. And we can bring glory to God too by loving others and putting them first like Jesus did. Now, most likely, uh, God won't ask us to sacrifice ourselves literally to death for somebody else. But there are so many ways that we can love other people uh, and, and live self-sacrificially for them. So God wants us to live for others, love others, show them the love of Jesus Christ as Jesus showed to us. And at Christmas especially, we need to remember that Jesus came down because of love so that we might live and show that same love to others because they will know we are Christians by our love. Amen? Lord God, we just thank you so much for this Christmas celebration. And Lord, everything that it means, not just the birth, Lord, but the life and the death and the resurrection, and the ascension, and the sitting on the right hand of glory, and the hope that that brings to us, Lord, that one day we too will be resurrected from these bodies, from death, Lord, from this sinful world, to spend eternity with you, Lord. All of these things are encompassed in this Christmas celebration, Lord, and so we thank you for all of it, every bit of it, Lord, as we uh, contemplate your birth over the next several days. Lord, we give you all praise, we give you all glory, and we praise the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.